Danielle, the problem is people become saturated by your bizarre weirdness and it just becomes normal to them. You can't surprise people anymore. I know. It's a rough life that I live. I'm underappreciated. I'm so funny. I think the fact that you dance for people who don't appreciate it and continue to do so shows that you're really just here for your own amusement. I just danced, but you didn't see it. Uh, thank you, I guess. <laughs> it was great. Uh, I'm sure it was. Please hold the applause. Not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Book Retorts. I'm Sam. I'm Danielle. And this is the podcast about sharing your weird media with your friends who don't know what you're talking about. And despite our recent spate of having us understand what the other person is talking about because we're doing sequels, despite the fact that we're doing that again today, I don't <laughs> think you'll know what I'm talking about because it's been so long, Danielle. That's true. It's been weeks and weeks, Sam. It's weeks. been ages and ages. We've been on a brief semi-hiatus. <laughs> <laughs> I take no responsibility for that. That's fine. You had your hiatus last year. It was my turn for a hiatus. I don't know. Did I have a hiatus? I don't think I had a hiatus. There was a fire-related hiatus. We didn't know it wasn't because I I ordered the... Never mind. It doesn't matter. <laughs> we did. I don't even think we missed a week, but I could well, be wrong. because we had everything back. We had a backlog then, <laughs> which we do not have now. I don't think we missed a single week. Because of the backlog. We ran out of backlog and we haven't recovered since. Yeah, that was my fault. The reason why we haven't recovered since is my fault. <laughs> it's Indirectly. all right. You know, it doesn't matter. The point is, we're in this together, Danielle. <laughs> yes, we are. Speaking of things we're going to do together, Danielle, do you remember what happened all low those many weeks ago on Hyperion? Um, Only if it's the... Well, not really. But only if it's the chapter with the poet. Was the poet where we left off? Yeah, it was. So that's good. Okay. I do not remember his name. Martin. And he started with an M. Martin Salinas, yes. <laughs> Martin Salinas, the poet. The, uh, the poet. Very full of himself poet. Yeah, he's, he's not just like a full, I mean, he is a little bit, but he's also like. He is a little bit. <laughs> he takes nothing. He's one of the people who take nothing seriously. Yeah, I don't. Um, I'll be honest. I don't remember anything up to the point where he started writing and got famous. I guess there was a point prior to that where he was trying to be famous. Nope. <laughs> Yeah, he was. He was writing. Remember, he was writing the poems and sending them to the other planets, but nobody wanted to. Yeah, he wrote read like them. three. He had this whole youth when he was living on old Earth with his mother. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, he did. Uh, they continue upriver in the Benaries, if you have forgot that first. The Benaries. The Benaries. My favorite. Yes. And Martin starts telling his story about how he is very old, something close to 500 years old. Right. Because he's traveled. Oh, because his family lost their fortune and he traveled through time to like, because his mom put it all in. <laughs> I a... mean, he traveled in time in the sense that he went forward in time, like he all went of us for, do. Yeah, he went forward. Yeah, but he went like much, he went in a spaceship and went forward in time because he was trying to, his, they, the family was going to lose their money because the earth was dying. Well, no. I mean, yes. yes, but no, they did lose their money. But okay, so let's go back a little bit. <laughs> well, that was all true. 
the, the family was already deeply in debt. They already uh, had a huge amount of debt. So the plan the, was for yeah. him to be put on the spaceship so that he could overcome their loss of money. Right. Because she was going to put it into like a... A high uh, yeah, Right. And he was supposed to like in 100 years or whatever get his stuff back. Yes. But it didn't work out that way because when he finally came through, Earth had been destroyed and apparently there's no rules about money being right. saved for people who are... I mean, in stasis. They knew <laughs> Earth was being destroyed. They just assumed that they wouldn't, you know, seize the Earth accounts or something. But they had, and so he had very little uh, yes. to no money when he so finally he skipped was his up. entire childhood. You know, all his was chapters are learning about poetry and becoming a, and learning about who he is and then growing up. So none of his, you know, foundational years seem to matter. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do they? The rest of the story is all about his cantos, so it doesn't really matter what he was like as a child. <laughs> it's all about the person who made the cantos. You got to learn about the artist before you can learn about the art. Sure. But if you want to hear more about Martin Salinas' childhood, feel free to check out our previous episode <laughs> on Hyperion. <laughs> you might need a refresher, too. Yeah, so he landed. Do you remember where he ended up? Uh, not Hyperion. No, Heaven's Gate. Oh, that's right, because he was stuck. It's a terrible planet. It's not really heaven. It's a no. lie, y'all. And he, uh, <laughs> yeah, okay, y'all. <laughs> and he had a stroke or something on the, when yeah. he was on the spaceship, and so he, he was he in cryogenic had... stasis on some old spaceship, which is why you know it took him so long to get there in terms of absolute time. Right, and he worked in the mines or something, trying to save up money so he the could leave. Pits. Yeah, the sure. mud pits. And. He had no vocabulary. Uh, but he built it up by writing on toilet paper. Yes. <laughs> See, I do remember some of this. <laughs> I mean, sure. And he gets discovered. He's finally kind of built up his vocabulary, become uh, more like his old self when he something happens and some wife of somebody ends up seeing him. He's beaten up. Oh, he's beaten up by the bad guy. By the, not the bad bully. guy, but One the, the bully. bully. The, the, the mm-hmm. tough guy, the the, yeah, the the gang leader, whatever. Yeah, so he's beaten up and he's kind of lying on the side of the road with his toilet paper cantos and uh, the wife of somebody important is floating by in her spaceship or whatever. The I don't MD, know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and ends up seeing him, reads the cantos, falls in love with it, divorces her husband, marries him, and makes his book famous, his cantos. Well, I'm not sure if she falls in love with it as much as she's like, oh, this has potential for money. It's not necessarily right. clear if she's, you know, just emotionally invested in him or like, oh, this is the next fun thing for me to do. And I keep saying Cantos, but it's really just poems about Old Earth, if I recall correctly. So the first edition, yeah, so his Cantos is, is as yet incomplete. Right. That is what he's on working that. on. His original first first publication was his sort of musings and poetry about his childhood in old, on old Earth, which had the fortunate time of landing just perfectly when there was a resurgence in Old Earth nostalgia. So he instantly became very famous and wealthy. Yep. So he lives off this money. He buys this crazy house that has like a zillion different little portals in it. And the bathroom yeah. is like on a lake in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, uh, ocean planet. <laughs> even. Yeah, ocean planet. And he eventually gets divorced from that lady. Yeah, they, they get divorced. There's a flashback. Do you remember that? To his mom? The drug flashback. Yes, the flashback drug. And then he like flashes back to his mom having used it in the past as yeah, well. Yeah, and then he's like, I'm done with that stuff. <laughs> and at some point he decides... Oh, he tries... Oh, he's really deeply in debt. He wants to uh, publish his next novel, and he does that. Yep. Well, he's not quite doesn't... deeply in debt yet. Like, he's not doing okay. great, but well, he, tells the, his he gets person... a big advance on his next novel. Yeah, and uh, his publisher is like, this is not going to end well for you. Nobody wants to read this. And he's like, I don't care. I want to do it anyway. So he puts it out in public, and nobody wants to read it. And so he loses a bunch of money with that endeavor. And then he decides to start writing old earth kind of like fan fiction. <laughs> uh, a bodice rippers or a thriller. <laughs> that kind of stuff. 
and it becomes pretty popular. He makes a bunch of money, and he eventually decides, I can't do this anymore, and he leaves his life. Uh, yeah. So, yes, he decides he's going to quit writing because, A, no one wants to buy his books, his, his actual work, and the work he is writing he finds unfulfilling and to be direct, essentially. Right. So he ends up hanging out with Sad King Billy. Is that Sad his name? Sad King Billy, yes. Yeah, who's like a collector of artists. He's like a patron. And, a serial yeah. patron. And they end up moving to some city on Hyperion. Well, not just moving, just they end up making a new colony. This is like the second colonization of Hyperion. Right. They create their own like artist city. The city of poets. Yes, that. <laughs> hard to remember. And yeah, hard to remember the, the name City of Poets in the story about a poet writing poetry. So he's trying to write his cantos there. Uh, oh, Danielle, you don't, you don't remember this part, do you? Where everybody gets murdered? No. What form did he have in the city? Oh, he's like a something with hooves. A satyr. <laughs> a satyr. He's a satyr. Yeah, he gets basically plastic surgery, cosmetic surgery, <laughs> to make himself into a literal satyr and decides that he's going to kill himself because he's depressed about not being able to write anything. But first, he's going to spend nine years or so. You know, he doesn't have that timeline forethought, but he ends up spending about nine years cavorting around as a satyr, uh, you know, in all kinds of weird twists. I can't believe he's a satyr for ten years. Yeah, right? Wild. <laughs> it's a long time to be a satyr. <laughs> then at some point, yep. the entire city gets murdered. End of story. Good. <laughs> <laughs> no. So at some point, it turns out that, like, people are mysteriously disappearing. So they start looking into it, and they find out that it's the Shrike. Yeah, so Billy has Spoiler. some evidence of the Shrike. I mean, it's always a Shrike when it comes to murder. <laughs> yeah, so the Shrike is killing people off one by one in the City of Poets. But, uh, good news, Martin Salinas uh, finds a muse in the Shrike and starts uh, very heavily writing his cantos, which he's been blocked on for quite some time. Do you remember the whole interrogation where he's like, yeah, I summoned the Shrike by writing about it. Like, I, I did some research, started writing about the Shrike, yeah. and then suddenly all the murders started happening. Yes. So at some point, they realize that he's done some research on the Shrike, uh, yeah. them being like Sad King Billy and uh, others. It's a security and forces, Sad, yeah. Right. And Sad King Billy comes and talks to him to, like, check on why he did some research and what's going on, if he has any relationship to the Shrike. And uh, Martin is like, yep, I did some research and I summoned him magically with my writing. She, like, I am the reason wrote that yeah. <laughs> he wrote it into being. I have the power to write the Shrike into being, even though it already existed. <laughs> sort of, yeah, yeah. He, he feels that way. He feels a connection to it, a kinship. He does. And then him and Sad King Billy get into a fight, and at some point, Sad King Billy dies. Okay, yeah. We just skipped a whole bunch. Aww. <laughs> Sad King Billy and the city, the people leave the city, and Martin right. stays behind with a small group of people who don't want to leave. Well, yeah, but I was going to say that, but I thought all that happened after Sad King Billy died. No. Slowly, okay. all the people get murdered until only Martin is left. Mm -hmm. And that's when Sad King Billy comes back and like breaks into his home, starts reading the cantos, and Martin comes back and sees him reading the cantos. That's right. They get into a big fight about it because he's like, you can't read my book work. Ah! Yeah, yeah. They get into a huge thing and then... Uh, striking Billy him? stuns him, basically. Right. Paralyzes him. Drags him out to a square with a fountain. He burns his, tries to, oh, he burns his cantos. Starts burning the stacks and stack, like, we're talking thousands of pages here. Because that's all Martin Salinas does, is write his cantos. Yeah, his unending, unfinished cantos. So he's burning the cantos. Do you remember what happens next? The strike shows up. Shrike shows up! We know it! We love it! And eats <laughs> it's Shrike Billy. time, baby! And takes... Sad King Billy and puts him on a spiky tree ship. No, chest. 
he thing. like hugs he hugs King Billy and impales him on his chest. <laughs> yes, exactly like that. Only not at all. He puts them onto his spikes. <laughs> and then, do you remember how Martin finally gets rid of them? Uh, no, not at all. He douses the Shrike and said King Billy and kerosene that King Billy had been using to burn the Cantos and lights them both on fire. Whoa, man, I don't remember that at all. Seriously, <laughs> you remember that the whole Avatar of fire and burn into his? No, you remember he lights them on fire? No, he definitely no. did. Yeah, I don't remember. I do not remember that. Not this a that single he memory. He lights them on fire and the Shrike disappears. <laughs> like there's a horrible scream, uh, like an inhuman Ooh. scream from Sad King Billy, and then the Shrike and he just disappear, and Martin is left there all alone, and he spends the next few months rebuilding his Cantos, and then hiking out of there back to civilization, and then spends a few hundred years back in cryostasis, trying to, like, wait for the Shrike to reappear so he can finish his Cantos, and then he ends up back on the Shrike pilgrimage. How did I miss that? I mean, I, I knew all the stuff that came after, I just had no recollection as to how they got there. Yeah. Well, you wow. know. Fire. You what remember the story, whole fire? That was, the, that was the whole climax, the intense part where he nope. lights the Shrike and King Billy on fire. Don't remember a single thing from that. You should definitely and... remember that because <laughs> it will come back. Okay. R- regardless, I should get a million points because that was a fairly solid retelling. I'm, I'm not saying if you didn't do a really good job. I'm just saying, like, I've all been, I'm just really impressed that you remembered so much, but not like the most important climactic part of the <laughs> no. story. I don't at all. I had no idea how that actually ended. <laughs> That's what I'm getting. Like, you did so well, and then like, oh, the whole part where you set everyone on fire instead of like, I don't know, trying to help Sad King Billy is like crazy. Nope, don't remember that. All right. You know, good enough. That should get everyone caught up enough that we can get back into it with this week's story. Which has nothing to do with Martin Salinas, I imagine. No, of course not. Every story is an individual story in this part of the it book. It is. Who was ne- I don't remember who was next. Who was next? Well, the next part was The Scholar's Tale. The River Lethe's Taste is Bitter. Oh, that's right. Remember who the scholar is? Bird. (laughs) (laughs) I should have asked. (laughs) Blue. (laughs) Saul Weintraub. Oh, yeah, that's right. Saul Weintraub and his infant daughter, Rachel. No, it doesn't. That's right. You think Kassad. Kassad's the bird. No, I also think Saul Weintraub sounds like a like a British bird or something. A, a British bird? Yeah, they always have such weird names. <laughs> Birds in Britain. Uh, British <laughs> ornithologist. <laughs> Can you uh, tell me if your bird name's particularly weirder than anywhere else in the world? Because I don't think that's true. Would you have a Saul Weintraub as a bird in Britain? <laughs> Please let us know. <laughs> All right, so we open our story back on the river with the Benaries. <laughs> yeah, How are you- they not birds? <laughs> <laughs> the the Benaries is pulling into the outpost of Edge. It is the last outpost on the Edge, get it, of the Sea of Grass. Is it literally a Sea of Grass? Oh, yes, we'll get to the Sea of Grass. Oh, sure we will. Is it tall grass? Do things disappear in the tall grass? Because we have a movie about that. Anybody who wants to have a throwback. If you want to have more time traveling shenanigans that don't make any sense, try Danielle's in the tall grass. (laughs) Oh, man, it doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Compared to that movie, this book's time travel is totally thought out. That's true. Please carry on. So unfortunately, the mantas do not survive the trip. They die from exhaustion. <gasps> no, and then I one like dies, the and they like push one out back in the river, saying it might survive if it gets lucky. These people are terrible. Well, they had to. They couldn't change mantas because like everyone's been evacuating or people are being murdered. Like, there's no one here to help them along their track. They're basically going it alone. Oh, please, poor mantas. <laughs> I know we're all very sad Casualty for the mantas. Of war. Edge is deserted, as is most of Hyperion at this point. And a Betek, you know who a Betek is? No, the android. 
Bedick. Oh, that's right. No, we didn't. I, we just we don't know. We don't know a story. We don't know a story. <laughs> he's not. He's not one of the Pilgrims telling the stories. <laughs> I know it's unfortunate because I'd really rather hear the Android story, to be honest. Oh, uh, Danielle. Um, spoiler: You're going to hear a lot more about the Android in like book three or four. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, but I have to wait so long. And you that's won't remember. Be like a year from now. <laughs> At least. The base we're going, probably four. Oh, gosh. Hey there, everybody. <laughs> yeah, me too. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not worried about you. I, I'm always worried about me, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> so, Abetic tells them that according to the temple bondature, he and the other androids are now free since they completed their trip. So, maybe they were slaves? Uh, not yeah, great. That's not good. Not good, but they're free now, so yay. Yay, but no. Bad. I mean, the good they're free, Danielle. No, it's good that they're free. I wasn't arguing that. I was <laughs> arguing the previous life existence that they had. That's very not fair. Oh, absolutely. But they're like, all right, we're going to go and do some other stuff. We have other plans and stuff to do on Piperion. So we're out uh, here. We're going to leave the Venaries here for your return, if you return, and uh, laters, and they take off. <laughs> Will the strike does the strike eat androids too? Is that a thing? I don't know, Danielle. We might find out. Okay. Well, stay so they tuned, have their everybody. own mysterious purposes on Hyperion that they are. They own their own machinations. Of course they do. Yeah, I know. Everything's got machinations on this planet. <laughs> so the pilgrims wait on the edge of the Sea of Grass, which is an ocean of literal grass stretching billions of square kilometers, but their ride, a wind wagon, is nowhere to be seen. They can't hey, what? just hike. No, what? What? Wait, whoa, whoa, what? Yeah. The ride that's supposed to pick them up, the wind wagon, is not there. Oh, the ride. It was confusing to me because he talked about grass, so that it sounded like you said rye, and then a wind wagon. <laughs> I was like, what is going on in this sentence? No, no not, not wheat, but not rye wheat. It is a wind wagon, which is their, their, their transport through the sea of grass. Yeah, you just say all the terms like they already make sense to me. No, they do not. <laughs> they don't, and that's the fun part. <laughs> They can't just hike through the grass because not only is it very far and compasses don't work in Hyperion due to its weak magnetic field, so they'd certainly get lost. But on top of that, the grass is razor sharp and will cut them to ribbons. And as if that weren't enough, there are also grass serpents. So, you know, it is everything fun in the sea of grass. (laughs) I love it. Let's go in the sea of grass. I hope they end up there at some point. Oh, they won't. Uh, (laughs) Come on. Come on. (laughs) So they pile their luggage and wait, hoping the wagon will come, you know, by tomorrow or something. And while they're chilling, Het Mastin is all like, all right, it's time to admit that this is a lot of luggage for a bunch of pilgrims who don't expect to survive this trip. And so it's it's obvious that we all brought something we think might save us on this trip, might be our salvation. Yeah, of course. And so Mastin goes around guessing what everyone brought. He's like, Martin Salinas, you brought your, your manuscript, obviously, because you're obsessed with that thing. <laughs> so his luggage is just full of papers. Yeah, probably. <laughs> they don't have like a computer system in the future. You can just type everything, have it on like a little thumb drive or something. I mean, they have the comms networks, but like, I think A, Martin's old school, and B, like, he wouldn't trust this stuff to be in the, you know, internet or whatever. I guess. Yes, okay. Kassad brought weapons, because, you know, Kassad. He doesn't guess what Bron Lamia brought, since she hasn't told her story yet. She's like, it'd be premature for me to try to guess that. He asserts that the council's special item is his spaceship, which he (laughs) says he can't call because the commsats are down. And anyway, it can't land near the time tombs anyway because of weird effects of, you know, ships lying there empty and that never works out. So it's not going to help them get there anyway. So it's like, oh, no, can't use it. Have to wait for the wind wagon. I'm assuming the spaceship is not in a piece of luggage. No, it's back at the 
port, <laughs> but he can probably call it remotely is what they're asserting. Got it. Hetmastin admits that he brought a Mobius cube, a special trunk designed to transport delicate artifacts, but he won't reveal what's in it until it's his turn to speak. Of course. Of course. <laughs> this is the most ridiculous group of people. They're like, I'm not going to tell you until I get to tell my story. I drew lot number six, <laughs> and that's when I'll talk in the moment before. <laughs> we could save each other if we didn't miscommunicate, but we're not going to. <laughs> They're going to communicate just in a very structured way. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's great. But suddenly the wind wagon appears. Yay. Hurrah. Even though I wanted them to walk through the tall grass. It wouldn't have happened. It's not going to end up like that movie. Uh, the wind wagon is a giant like galleon looking ship, like an actual like, wooden sailboat looking ship nice. with one giant wheel in the center of that it uses to like balance on with gyroscopes and whatnot that it sort of rides along. I'm here for that. Yeah, it, it's absolutely ridiculous and i kind of love it the ship is empty and it's entirely automated in like a giant clockwork type way like all the ropes are being pulled by mechanical arms and that kind of thing so it's very steampunk or clockwork or whatever you want to call it i'm going with steampunk i like to think he's ahead of his time <laughs> so they load it all up and set sail and it'll take all night plus another half day to cross the sea of grass and get to the mountains of the bridal range as they eat martin salinas uh with his irreverent attitude treating this whole thing as like one big joke and everything as a big joke has been annoying the heck out of braun lamia for a while they've been butting heads you know and sniping on each other all along the journey i haven't included all of it because boy that's a lot of unnecessary sniping but suffice to say <laughs> they have been at each other's throats and finally braun lamia snaps and threatens to kill him with a pencil laser she brought with her but Saul Weintraub was like hey uh do I have to remind you there's a child present and sort of like that diffuses the situation no She's, no you don't get to use that as your excuse when you're being a little sassy pants <laughs> no it's Saul who says that not Martin it doesn't He's like, matter like I, I just think Mm. <laughs> He's just like, hey, Bron, uh, maybe don't you know melt this guy's forehead right in front of my daughter, my even daughter, please. Could have said that like a zillion years ago if they've been fighting this entire time. Well, just like verbally sparring. This is the first time murder has been on the table. That seems unlikely. But either way, he decides, hey, this is probably a good time to tell my story. And, you know, we have all night. So people are, are ten, so let me just distract you with my story time. So it's story time with Saul Weintraub. I feel like there's a little theme. We should have a little theme every time you start one of these stories. Like story time, do 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 story time. You just give me more editing work, Danielle. <laughs> story time, do 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 with Sam. <laughs> Boop doo. <laughs> That's like every episode we, every other episode we do of this podcast. <laughs> You know, <laughs> it's always story be? time on Booker Torrance. Yeah, that's the point. Like, what's your theme song going to be? It's not story time with Danielle. <laughs> we'll do. I'll do the same theme song, but a little bit higher. <laughs> uh, sure. Okay. Great. I want to hear that right now. <laughs> nope. Got to hear it on Danielle's turn. I, I bet you won't remember. I won't remember. I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> So it starts with Saul meeting his wife, or his soon-to-be wife, Sarai, on Barnard's World, an old and not very exciting member of the hegemony. Saul and Sarai could not afford frequent forecaster travel, so it didn't matter to them that it didn't really have good access to the web. They just sort of hung around their small town of Crawford, leading a peaceful, happy life. That life was only made more perfect by the birth of their daughter, Rachel, which is a bigger septic tragedy I have never heard. Okay. They're not on Hyperion, right? They're somewhere else. Barnard's World. Barnard World. Okay. It was a literal different world. I was just making sure. Yeah. I mean, many different planets and Barnard's World <laughs> is the one that they're on. Okay. Is Rachel the name of the kid that's there? Yeah, that's the baby. Okay. I was making sure it was all the same. Yeah, there's, there's the only one I don't kid. Know. 
Just Rachel. <laughs> anyway, uh, Saul and Sarai, they met at school. It was love at first sight, and they made their first trip off-world for their honeymoon to Maui Covenant, renting a small mobile isle that they sailed through the equatorial archipelago. They desperately wanted a child, but it took them five years to conceive, and Rachel was just perfect when she finally came into their lives. She Aww. was, quote, one of the rare children who managed to be cute without being precious. Okay. Uh, how old is Rachel now? Right now? now? Like a few weeks. So this so this whole story just took place a few weeks ago? <laughs> oh, Danielle, we're going to get to that. <laughs> this is so confusing. <laughs> Saul has an infant, Rachel, who is a few weeks old, like less than six weeks old, something like that. Okay. That seems deeply concerning. Yeah, yeah. You should be very concerned. Uh, we'll get to how she is, why she is, how long this takes. Don't worry about it. Do they end up in one of those spaceships and travel ahead 100 years? Like, what's his face? <laughs> like, Martin? We'll get there, Daniel. Yeah. Don't worry. Okay. Rachel's also described as a striking girl who was brilliant, too. Uh, but to show what? that she was... Yes. What? She's only six weeks old. <laughs> to show that she wasn't perfect, the book says that one time she cut her own hair and that of her dolls when she was five years old. And then at seven, she, she took all their food and gave it to a migrant worker she thought wasn't eating well enough. And then Is she once, aging backwards? We'll get to this, Danielle. <laughs> and she once climbed a tree on a dare and broke her leg when she fell. And I'm not persuaded by her lack of perfection. This is like the rom-com <laughs> female lead who's like, oh, she's clumsy, so she's relatable. I'm just, okay. Okay. <laughs> I mean, this book is doing a lot of stuff to show how perfect their lives are, because you know it's just going to undercut it with tragedy somehow, because that's how this book rolls. Obviously, if she's only six weeks old. So Rachel graduated with honors and went to school for archaeology, graduating early at 19, an adult, quote, self-aware and secure in some ways that grown-ups twice her age often failed to be. Again, could not be foreshadowing harder. She's going to Benjamin Button. Her postgraduate work was in alien and pre-Higira artifacts, and no surprise, she decided to do field work on, wait for it, Danielle, where did she do field work? Hyperion! To study the time tombs. <laughs> Apparently the tombs are a bit of a tourist trap in these days, without the Shrike having been seen in 200 years and relegated back to being a legend. Is this like in the past or the future? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, my brain. <laughs> Why do you do this to me, Sam? <laughs> so Saul starts asking her, hey, what about the second colonization? I heard that in a disaster. And Rachel's like, oh no, the destruction of the city of Poets all those years ago was probably due to rock eels attacking. You know, the Shrike is just a legend. And then the tale sort of snowballed and like, oh, it was the Shrike or something like that. But you know how, how legends get started, Dad. So this is like 200 years after Martin was, so this is basically after Martin is back in the spaceship, like doing his time travel through the future, waiting to finish his cantos. Which was in the past? So this story is taking place, you know, in the recent past, during the time, 200 years after Martin Salinas finished up on the left Hyperion, basically. Yeah, I'm going to need you to draw me a timeline. <laughs> That's not going to happen. I don't have enough skills for that. <sighs> okay, whatever. So Rachel assures her worried father that she'll be fine. They have dirigible service there. The anti-entropic fields have been well mapped. And there's a hotel called Keep Kronos with hundreds of tourists each year. Also, Keep Kronos, killer name for hotel. <laughs> and we like dirigibles. Who doesn't like dirigible? I mean, come on. <laughs> They're our favorites. <laughs> they never end fiery explosions. <laughs> so Rachel spent a few weeks going to Hyperion, but that incurred a four-year time debt. And Saul missed her terribly, more than if she had just been somewhere else in the world. Because, again, it was like she was moving at a different pace through time than he was. Mm -hmm. I don't think you miss somebody more because they're moving at a different time well, yeah, than he you are. Well, he couldn't make contact her either, you know? 
Because, like, she was only gone a few weeks, but to him, she was gone for years. Right. Five years after Rachel left, Saul had a dream. Danielle, get ready for some dreams. No. Why? (laughs) You love dreams, Danielle. You constantly bring me dreams. So it seems really fair. Well, it's because stories have dreams, Sam. (laughs) (laughs) You also bring me your dreams, Danielle, so come on. I have weird dreams. When have I not, like, I've I've rarely told you a boring dream. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all right uh, i'm not gonna comment on that <laughs> <laughs> they're always really weird my dreams are weird uh-huh okay uh anyway moving on so saul he was found himself wandering through a large structure with tree size like redwood tree sized columns and two red lights that glowed ahead of him in the darkness a voice spoke saying saul take your daughter your only daughter rachel whom you love and go to the world called hyperion and offer her there as a burnt offering at one of the places of which i shall tell you oh no don't do that and Saul's Hard like, pass. Yeah. No, Saul's like, you can't be serious. And the voice just repeats itself. And he's like, uh, no, I am not doing that. And then suddenly he's on a low balcony looking down to a room where Rachel is laying naked on a broad stone block, illuminated yeah. by the two red orbs. And he is holding a long curved knife. The voice says, Saul, you must listen well. The future of humankind depends on your obedience in this matter. And Saul, who at this point is aware it's a dream, is like, uh, I am done. And he chucks the knife into the darkness and the scene fades as the orbs grow closer, appearing to be now as multifaceted gem. And the voice says, so? You had your chance, Saul Weintraub. If you change your mind, you know where to find me. Which, (laughs) that's awesome. Like, yeah, you're my dreams, buddy. I can find you there, I guess. <laughs> Just close your eyes and think about it. Yeah, like, you know, we have big happy thoughts that I'll appear before you demanding the sacrifice of your daughter. <laughs> If you change your mind, just in case. Yes, yeah, in case. It is awesome. I love that dream. Why? Well, okay. I, mean, I don't know what sacrificing his daughter would accomplish, but you think the dream would, would show you that so that you knew to make an educated decision. I mean, this is uh, we'll get to it, uh, but this is clearly an Abrahamic parallel. And the whole idea is about obedience, you know, not questioning the will of God or whatever, and just shoot obedience yeah. to that. Okay. <laughs> we'll get to that. Yeah, believe me, this I'm cutting out a lot of like uh, Saul is a scholar of ethics, and I'm cutting out a lot of ethical musing from this. So perfect. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Saul wakes up after that. At the same time, Saul had his dream. Rachel was on Hyperion finishing her first year of research. Rachel was focused on mapping the Sphinx, one of the tombs, which is really more of an amorphous shape suggesting a living creature than it looked like an actual Sphinx like the one in Giza. Okay. Unlike the other tombs, which are all open and easily explored, the Sphinx was a honeycomb of passages, some shrinking to these tiny passages too small to pass through or growing to be large and cavernous. Every corridor, though, was empty. There were no interesting artifacts no mummies, nothing, like, no writing, anything in there. So Rachel and her lover, Emilio Alvarez, mapped the Sphinx using cosmic ray detection to try to find hidden rooms where they put detectors and, and look for cosmic rays that would pass through. Anyway, not important how that works, although the book does tell you if you're interested. They're the first people to do this? Apparently so. And there is going to be some more about that later, Danielle. Okay. It, it is a source of consternation that the there's so little information about the time tombs in the, in the hegemony. Yeah, it just seems unlikely that nobody would have tried any of this before. Well, who knows? Because of the busy tourist season, Rachel and Emilio had to map the tombs at night. And fortunately, the Sphinx lay furthest from the time tides, and the low tide times were... <laughs> the low tide times times time tides times there we go no <laughs> the low time tides times were easily mapped and predictable so they knew when it was safe 
<laughs> Question. Uh, about that sentence? Because I cannot explain no. it. <laughs> like, ignoring that sentence entirely. Sure. I think I'll let it stand on its own. Um, the time tombs are a tourist trap, correct? At this point, there are tourist attractions, the time tombs. Okay. So are there like guides yeah. that come in? Like you could book online and come keep in Kronos and they'll show like you the, the nearby that. hotel that they say, oh, come to Keep Kronos, then you can take these day trips to the time tombs. Wild. <laughs> I know, right? Apparently, <laughs> Until like, the Shrike eats you. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like the Shrike apparently has been dormant long enough that again, humanity's like short memory that humanity has. It's like, okay, but it's fine. But also, they seem to have very limited knowledge of these time tombs yeah. and it's impressive that they're just like, it's fine, wander through. I'm sure nothing will happen. <laughs> well, and to be fair, nothing has happened. And then like the, the anti-entropic fields are quite the attraction, I would I would think. Uh, apparently. So in the last weeks of her research, while they had still found nothing interesting, Melio and Rachel would take turns each night monitoring the detectors with one of them while the other would process data in anticipation of wrapping up their project. One night, while Rachel was in the tomb alone, almost dozing while monitoring the instruments, suddenly at 2.15 a.m., all the detectors went off, indicating that the Sphinx had suddenly grown a dozen new chambers, some bigger than the Sphinx itself, while the external sensors indicated the structure was twisting and flexing, sort of like wings. So, like, things are getting weird. Then Rachel hears footsteps above her, and all the displays went dead. All the lights went out, even though they're all battery-powered, and even her flashlight wouldn't work. Does she die and then reverse age? So Rachel fought down her panic and (laughs) tried to feel her way to the exit, which was a hole about halfway up the wall. But the ceiling was descending on her, and before she could reach it, the exit was blocked by the descending ceiling. Uh-oh, spaghettios. Rachel sits down uh, on the floor as an oscilloscope on a table is crushed by the lowering ceiling. Then she heard a metallic rasp, like breathing, right beside her. Something sharp grabs her wrist, and she screams. Is it the shrike? Is he impaling his victims with his shriky nose? <laughs> nose? Yeah, doesn't the shrike have a nose that it impales things on? No. Not the shrike creature, but the shrike bird. <laughs> no, they impale things on other things. That's the point. Do they pick things up and, like, impale them on? Trees yeah. on sticks? On sticks or cactus or barbed wire. Man, you learn something new about the Shrike every day. I said that the first time I mentioned them. Okay, well, I didn't learn anything about Shrikes. <laughs> <laughs> you should, uh, listeners should know that I know nothing about birds. <laughs> You're barely convinced that they can fly, and some of them can't. Yeah, yeah. Like, I can identify like six species of birds. It's one's like a seagull. <laughs> well done, Danielle. We'll have a bird quiz later. <laughs> Maybe at the end of Hyperion, <laughs> end of the first book, we have a bird quiz. I didn't even know shrikes existed until four episodes ago. <laughs> I'm gonna, you know, what? I'm gonna do a bird quiz for you at the end of this, at the end of this book, and we're gonna have some fun with that. I think. Oh, okay, sounds good. So Saul and Sarai heard of the accident that their daughter was being transferred to a hospital on Renaissance Vector weeks after, because there was no Farcaster or Fat Line transmitter on Hyperion in those days. So they found her. She didn't like disappear or something. Mm-hmm, they found her. Was she squished? What did she nope. look like? Well, Danielle, we'll get to the whole accent. Oh, okay. But I don't know what's going to get there. <laughs> so they just, they just heard that she had an accent, and we're getting to what the accent it is. Okay. Sorry. Continue. It would take five months of time to transfer her to the hospital, months that were agony for Saul. At the hospital, the doctor tells him and Sarai that while Rachel seems to have suffered no physical injury, she's been unconscious since she was found in the Sphinx, after she was caught in a surge in the anti-entropic fields, and that those fields seem to have contaminated her in some way. Uh-oh. Saul is like, are you saying she caught an aging disease like Methuselah syndrome or Alzheimer's? Which, A-plus for Methuselah syndrome, don't know what that is, but I am intrigued. 
Is Alzheimer's still a thing, apparently, in this futuristic society? And apparently it's an aging disease. I mean, it often happens as you age. But I don't I think it's like a disease that causes aging. Like Methuselah syndrome seems to be like a disease that like, oh, suddenly you're very old. Well, maybe Alzheimer's is different in the future, Sam. <laughs> it's future Alzheimer's. <laughs> but the doctor's like, uh, no, this is something new we're calling Merlin sickness. As far as we can tell, she's aging backwards. Why is that Merlin sickness? Did Merlin age backwards? Yeah, the whole myth was that he was born an old man age backwards, yeah. Oh, uh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> you know I'm not good with myths. <laughs> You're not good with myths. You're not good with bird. You're great with love triangles. So I guess we got that. <laughs> okay, I have other skills, okay? Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> I know many things. They just don't often come up on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Whose fault is that? That's true. I should do more things that I'm... I should show how intelligent I am you or something. I will, I'll find a good book. There's little evidence in this podcast. Danielle was very smart. Thank you. Yep, I'm all back you, up on that. Yeah, you heard it from Sam, everybody. And there's evidence to the contrary. I'm not as big a jerk as I sound on this podcast. Uh, no, I'll back you up because you backed me up. <laughs> but only because of that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, let's get back to the story before we, we offend each other. Yes, any yes, yes, please. <laughs> so Rachel woke a few days after Saul and Sarai arrived. The last thing she remembers is the night before the accident. Saul explains she had an accident and was unconscious for a while, but that she's back in the web safe. The doctors are flummoxed, and Saul has the hot take that medicine hadn't really changed much since the days of leeches. It's just the bills are bigger. Zing! Oh, not untrue. So, the time tombs, yep. they know that there's, like, time involved in the time tombs, right? They know the anti-entropic fields keep the time tombs from aging, or at least affect their travel through time in some way. So, they can't be overly shocked that some disaster in the time tombs might cause some kind of oh, time-related sure. issue. They're not shocked about what happened. They're, they're flummoxed on how to correct it. Well, you can't. It's time. <laughs> <laughs> Look, if you can, you're just out of luck. <laughs> I mean, if you can, if you can make someone travel backwards through time, you can make them travel forwards through time again. There's got to be a way to undo it if you can do it, right? Yeah, but you can't. I mean, it's not like it was human created. It was something that happened in some mysterious cave with possibly the shark. <laughs> yeah, but also they're like not sure how this all works because, like, even though. She's aging backwards, like her metabolism still works. She still thinks forward. It's not, it's not like she's trapped in a bubble of backwards time or anything. Uh, she's still, is she, when she de-ages, does she also lose her, like, intelligence as she de-ages? Does she oh, we're going to spend a lot of time in this process, Danielle. Wonderful. This is the whole, this is the whole story, so <laughs> this is the whole story. So we are Benjamin Buttoning in, yeah, this, so in this many ways. well before Benjamin Button. <laughs> Um, and actually, other... in my opinion, much more interesting. It is interesting. The How old was she when she, she went to the time tombs? She was 24. Okay. So we've got a long time to go, Danielle. All right. <laughs> anyway, the next day that Rachel wakes up, she has no memory of the previous day. And in fact, the earliest she can remember is now the day before the accident. So not the same day, but now she's lost the day of her memory. So every night that she goes to sleep, she forgets the day she just lived, and also another day from her life before the accident. What? Why? Because she's going. She's aging backwards. So all her memories, like, oh, I'm now 24. I remember, you know, if I, you know, if I'm 24 in 16 days, I remember my those. If I lose a day, I'm now 24 in 15 days. My memory stopped at that 15 days. I mean, okay, I'm willing to go with it because that's Danielle, an interesting it's a magic concept. Aging backwards, sickness. Like, <laughs> like you don't- that's what I said. 
I said I was willing to go with it. It's an interesting concept. It's yeah, a so different way to tell that story. Day by day. Yes. But only when she goes to sleep. So if she doesn't go to sleep, she skips a night, does she remember? So they tried using, quote unquote, stay awakes to keep her awake. But eventually, after about 30 hours or so, she just goes catatonic and then the process starts over. And obviously, Rachel is very distressed by this. I mean, that would be weird. It would be uh, horrifying to be slowly losing your identity and yourself day by day. I mean, it's a lot like Alzheimer's, but you're reverse aging at the same time. Yeah. So eight weeks later, Rachel and Melia decide to go back to school. She's like, the doctors here are not finding me anything. I just need some kind of semblance of normalcy. I just need to get out and try to get back to life. And so later that year, Rachel calls Saul and tells him, hey, it is not working. School was a bust because she just forget everything she learned the day before, even though she'd like write it all down and like try to reread it the next day. Like she basically starting from scratch every day. Right. And her relationship with Melia deteriorated because soon, you know, she was at the point where she didn't remember dating him anymore and so he, she would have these videos she record for herself about like okay here's everything you missed you remember that um terrible movie 51st 50 first date yeah. i was just gonna say this yeah. is where that movie decided to get its spot yeah this from. is where they cribbed all of this from where like they'd be like she'd make a little video explaining like here's all your life since the day you you know, forgot all your memories she's doing that kind of thing where she's here's everything you've forgotten in the last you know however many days it's been I so want that movie to have somebody on that set or on that script writing committee, whoever wrote it, was like, hmm, Hyperion gave you a great idea for a (laughs) rom-com. I'm sure they absolutely had that somewhere in there. Uh, but yeah, so she's making these recordings. She's basically telling herself, hey, this is Mila. You don't know him, but, you know, he's your lover. You know, you love him and his relationship. And she rebuilt that relationship and she get to know him again in the course of the day. And then she'd forget it all again at night. And it was just way too hard learning to love him each day and then forgetting again. Yeah, it'd be a lot of effort. Yeah. And getting worse and worse. None of the various medical clinics she's been visiting have been any help. The best hospitals in the web, none of them have offered anything that can help change anything about her or fix her memory. And so she's like, I just want to come home, stay with you guys, someplace that I remember for now that is familiar. I have a question. What's worse? What's worse? Losing all your memories as you unage or losing, like keeping all of that as you unage? Yeah. So you're like six years old and you remember everything. No, that'd be awful because like you were a six-year-old who can't process like, oh, I I had a adult romantic relationship with this man and I'm six years old. I I cannot comprehend that. So I don't know which one's worse. It's like at least you're reverse aging and you're going to be appropriate age level versus not being appropriate age level by having none of your memories. Yeah, I think it's less, I mean, it's terrible for Rachel, don't get me wrong, but I think it's even harder for her parents. Yeah, I would imagine. And we're getting to a lot of that actually. So when Saul picks her up, she's shocked at how old he looks because with her school and her travels he's aged more than 11 years compared to her mm-hmm. is she when she's de-aging she's get, i imagine since she's six weeks now she's getting like smaller and smaller well i mean you know she's six weeks younger and when she's 24 you don't change that much in six weeks no but at some point she starts to like oh yeah we'll t- get there tiny up <laughs> tiny up all right everyone <laughs> grab your saddles tiny up <laughs> I just imagining the physical process of like not growing, of ungrowing, shrinking. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> a word for okay. it. Tiny up in the dictionary under tiny up, you see, see shrinking, <laughs> ungrowing. See ungrowing. Alternate ungrowing only in Canada though. <laughs> the Canadian term. <laughs> only in the UK. Okay. All right, <laughs> this has been vocab with Danielle. <laughs> Okay, it'd be a lot more interesting if everybody spoke with the words that I use. 
It'd be a lot more confusing for sure. That's the best part. Anyway, so she only remembers him as a younger man because she doesn't remember him aging at all. Mm -hmm. So for the first few months, things went well enough. Rachel would rise early each morning, listen to her, you know, hollow recording to reorient herself on how, even though she had no memory of, of being 22 years old at home on vacation before heading off to school. In fact, her life is much different and her parents and her life were much further advanced than that. So things went on like that for a few months until Rachel wanted to have a birthday party for her 22nd birthday and invite all of the same friends with whom she had celebrated over a decade ago. And while Rachel had seen some of them since her return, she had, of course, forgotten seeing them since she got back. Uh-huh. The party did not go well. So no, some of her friends sad. would be talking about things like their investments in kids, which she, as a 22-year-old, you know, back in that stage of her life, could not identify with. Mm-hmm. One friend just seemed confused by Rachel and, like, barely spoke to her or treated her like an imposter of some kind. Well, then why did she even go to the party? Come on. <laughs> One was openly jealous of Rachel's youth, which, like, ouch. <laughs> That's nonsense. Yeah. Like, I'm jealous that you're reverse aging and you will eventually die a baby. <laughs> Yeah, well, she doesn't know all that. She's like, well, you're young and beautiful still, and I'm old now. Well, older, like, you know, 30s. Nobody told them what was going on. Well, they did. That's the whole point. But they still were like, could not handle it. And uh, one friend just cried and left early. (laughs) See, that's the most realistic of the things. Yeah. So Rachel was like, Dad, uh, don't let me do anything like that ever again. That was a mistake. And so I was like, I agree. So in the spring, Saul began having that dream again with the same words. And though he yelled the voice to tell him what he needed to do to bring her back, all it did was demand the sacrifice. If he kills her, well, she'll come back to life. I mean, who knows, Danielle? <laughs> Just, I really feel like this dream should explain a little bit more. As usual, dreams are useless. <laughs> yes, they are. In the following months... Saul began to research Hyperion, becoming obsessed with the myths, and he was surprised to learn that so little data existed on such a mysterious place. Like, why hadn't the hegemony done more research on this crazy, weird place? So he's researching it because of his daughter's tie into it. Yeah, uh, yeah, Hoping to find some kind of answer. Yeah, exactly. In the meantime, Melio launched another Hyperion expedition with the express purpose of uncovering the phenomenon that had given Rachel her disease. They're not together anymore, right? They did break up. I mean, yeah, she broke up with him, and he's like, I just still want to help her because I still love her. Mm-hmm. Months passed for Saul, and he became frustrated at his lack of ability to do anything and the medical professionals who visited but also could offer no help. On Rachel's 21st birthday, she asked Saul to have a drink with her and to talk. Apparently, her daily self-briefing had gotten so big now that it took her two days to get through it all. So basically, she would force herself <laughs> to use, like, stay awakes to avoid sleeping so she could see everything that was happening. But by the mm-hmm. time she got through it, she'd be already exhausted and falling asleep and then forget everything again. Okay, I know that you'd lose some of your memories, but you think you could kind of like narrow it down to a few hours. <laughs> like you don't need to remember every single thing in your life. No, but it's been literally years worth of like catching her up on things. Right. I, I get why it's a lot of information, but I also think at some point just realistically you'd have to pick and choose. But also I think it's a problem that is going to get worse before it gets better because you know, she's <laughs> only going to have more and more years to catch herself up on as she gets younger right. and younger. So Saul and Rachel get drunk together, a happy giddy drunk, but then Rachel confess that she's struggling. While she accepts her situation as real, she doesn't like believe it. Like, she can't believe it. And spending two plus days going through everything she forgets when she sleeps isn't helping. And the thought of what happens next, does she just keep getting younger until she, what, disappears, is not comforting. (laughs) It's not? (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? Imagine, like, she's like, this is not good for me. I cannot handle this. She simply can't process everything before she's too exhausted, and she's back to square one again when she falls asleep. So, she asks Saul not to tell her. 
Just let her believe she's living in whatever day she thinks it is. That's a big decision. It is. I mean, I imagine she spent some a year probably thinking about it. So Saul and Sarai use some loan money to have Paulson treatments. It doesn't extend their lives, really, but it makes them look younger to about what Rachel would remember them at. Mm-hmm. They use old photo albums to match their clothes to their old styles. And the next scene we see is when Rachel is 16 years old. So it's been something like five more years have passed. Mm-hmm. Rachel's asking about class. And Saul is telling her that, nope, there's no school for her today. You've been sick. You might have a few gaps in your memory, but it's all fine. Hey, why don't we go hang out at the campus with me? You can come to work with me today. She sort of accepts that. And that's how it goes, it seems. Her poor parents living their little lies. Well, by her request and like, how else do you explain to a six-year-old? Oh, yeah, by the way, you just lost something like, oh, uh, eight years of your life. So let me shut you up. I'm not disagreeing with it. I just feel bad for the parents having to live out, you know? 21 years of this. (laughs) Yeah, no, every day, starting over with the same kind of like, oh, no, you don't have that band recital today. Oh, no, you don't have that track meet or whatever. Oh, no, Mm -hmm. that birthday party's not happening today. Like, every day, it would be, ooh, it would be a struggle, I think. Yeah. So three years later, Saul took a trip to the synagogue in Bussard City. He asked the rabbi about his Abrahamic dream. Saul was trying to see if the rabbi has any insight on what his subconscious, as he puts it, might be trying to tell him. The rabbi explained how the story of Abraham and Isaac wasn't about God having no regard for the people he made, saying, oh, you had to sacrifice them. It was about how Abraham had to demonstrate absolute obedience to God above all else. Mm-hmm. Saul is like... Uh, what would have happened if Abraham loved his son more than he loved God? And the rabbi has no useful answer. He just says that he shouldn't get his situation with Rachel confused with a thousands-year-old story. I don't know. They seem kind of (laughs) similar. I mean, do they? The only thing that's similar between them is the dream Saul is having. Oh, I just meant in terms of sacrifice. Maybe. The sacrifice hasn't been made yet, though. Right. And also, he, the rabbi says that children don't die from disease in the modern web. And Saul's like, okay, well, thank you, rabbi. Uh, I'm out. Later. Except they do with aging diseases. <laughs> Apparently so. <laughs> Later that year in the autumn, Saul sees a man standing outside his house. He goes out to see that it's Melio. And while it had been 10 years since the last contact with Melio, Melio was still a young man due to the time date of his travels to Hyperion. He came back to tell Saul that the university cut the fund for his research trip to Hyperion. They turned up nothing. He had been working up the courage to knock when Saul came out. Melio is despondent, feeling that he failed Rachel, but Saul assures him that it's not his fault. In fact, the whole hegemony, the senators they've reached out to, the science council directors, none of them seemed at all interested in Hyperion, and more as if they're avoiding Hyperion altogether, with Melio's loss of funding another example of the suspicious sort of disinterest in what's going on in the time tombs. They have knowledge of something. Either that or it's that they don't want knowledge of something. It's like, this well, is just that we just want to avoid this freaks us out. It's still knowledge of something enough to want to avoid it. <laughs> Fair enough. So just as Melia's about to leave, guess who walks up? The Shrike. Yes, this is right, Danielle. He's like, I'm here, Emilio. Guess what? I did it to your girlfriend. If you want me to undo it, you gotta sacrifice her. That's a strike voice, by the way. <laughs> I figured. I, I imagine that's exactly how I imagine the strike in my head. I'm the strike. I'm going to appeal you. That was for you. Man, that would be way less scary. Or maybe more scary? I'm not sure. You want a strike clown? Because that's how you get a strike clown. <laughs> That's terrible. That's so scary. I know, right? That's way worse than the strike or a clown alone. No, it is horrifying. (laughs) I'm here for your birthday party, kid. Oh, you're aging backwards. You're going to die. I'm out. Strike out. Good trick, huh? (laughs) Strike out. (laughs) 
start saying that. <laughs> you leave room. Strike out. See you later, time suckers. <laughs> oh, you can only go one direction in time? I'm the strike. I control time. Strike out. Strike out, time suckers. <laughs> I'd be like, what? That's <laughs> why I keep with all your friends. Uh, uh, we have been as goofy in this episode because this episode is very, this story is very tragic. <laughs> It's really sad. This is a very sad story. I'm sorry, but it's like a, an absolute tragedy of a story. And it's, as I said earlier, it's one of my favorites in the book, I think, because it's the most like emotionally impactful. But man, it sucks. <laughs> I do feel particularly bad for Saul now. Yeah, and right? for And for his little daughter, Rachel. Rachel's yeah. her name. Yeah. So, you know, it, it gets kind of comically sad in a way, but we'll get to that. But the point is, <laughs> Only if I'm that's sorry. Only I'm sorry I'm not bringing the goops. It's okay. Who is it, if not the Shrike, Sam? Uh, it's Rachel. 13-year-old oh, yeah. Rachel walks up. I kept thinking Rachel was there, sorry. No. Then you know, Rachel walks up. Emilio is, quite reasonably, absolutely shook. Well, yeah, but also, it's been 10 years, so he knew she was aging. Well, back. It, it would be weirder to see. I, it hasn't I, been 10 years for him, though, because of the time. It's been like a few Yeah, like but he knows years. it's been 10 years yeah, he knows it, But it's one thing to be like, oh, yes, and to actually know that my ex-lover is now aging backwards. It's another thing to see, like, oh, this is the person I had a adult relationship with who is now 13, and that is very uncomfortable. Right. <laughs> Like imagine, okay, like, oh, I'm going to sleep with you when you're ten years older. <laughs> that's not a, that's a very uncomfortable position to be in. I think it is. So Saul tries to play it off. He like she's like, oh, Rachel, this is Doctor Arundes. Uh, Doctor Arundes, this is my daughter Rachel. Emilio's like, okay, yeah, sure, good to meet you, Rachel. <laughs> How are your studies? <laughs> that kind of thing. Rachel uh, just sort of like, okay, I'm just a kid, and tells me like, oh, maybe I'd like to go to college in a few years, all that kind of stuff. And after that interaction, Emilio's like, I gotta go. I'm out. I have a question. Yeah. Okay. So you know how you don't remember most of the things that happened in your life. Sure. So if you were unaging, would like, like if I was suddenly five years younger and I just lost the like last five years of my life, mm -hmm. would the memories still just be as, are her memories just as vague as they always are? No. It's like. Like you're not going to remember more stuff or would you just like somehow your brain remembers what actually happened the day before? So she's existing. Her brain is existing in the day she thinks it is. So, right. I get that. So whatever meant, but, like, whatever state her brain was in, like, with or without memories, like, you know, it's not like her memories are fading. Like, she's not just like, oh, I don't remember what I was like 20 years ago when I was 12. Like, I am 12 now. And this is what I remember. And so she remembers the stuff that, yeah. like, she remembers it better than she would She remembers as it as if she was 12 again. And this was, like, her existing at that time point in her life. Got it. Thank or you. 13, yeah. So anyway, Emilio bounces, but before that, he tells Saul that they're going to get another expedition together. And then Saul's like, yeah, sure, good luck. And he thinks that even if they do, it would be at least three years before they get back to Hyperion in terms of time debt. And so either way, it doesn't matter because that was the last Saul ever saw Emilio in person. Aww. Exit, stage right, chased by a bear. <laughs> so is his, I mean, we'll get to this at the end, I'm sure, but is... His plan that she's this six-year, six-week-old baby. He's trying to like figure something out so that he can unage her and she can return back to normal aging. I mean, I think that's his entire purpose throughout this entire story, trying to figure out how to unage Rachel. Right, but that's his purpose right now on the Hyperion. That's his whole purpose. Group. Everything he's doing. Okay, perfect. And I mean, that's his purpose right now in this story. Right, I know, but also in the. No, he just brought his daughter Hyperion. Hyperion for a whim. He's like, oh, she's going to die soon. I thought I'd take one more vacation well, before I mean, she can't, dies. What are you supposed to do with the six-week-old? Like, you got to bring it with you. I don't know why all these people are necessarily on this this ship or whatever, this pilgrimage, pilgrimage together. <laughs> we'll get so, there. Like, 
<laughs> There's a lot of mystery surrounding the Sam. I get to ask dumb questions. You do get to ask dumb questions. I get to make fun of them too because that's <laughs> we gotta get the goose we can, Danielle. This story is so sad. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So anyway, never seen again. Mysterious. <laughs> gone out. Three years later, Saul had managed to arrange for an audience with the bishop of the largest Shrike church in the web, which was on Lucis. At the meeting, the bishop was all, Oh, we prefer to be called the Church of the Final Atonement instead of the Shrike cult. That's a little offensive. And the Shrike, we prefer to refer to it as the Lord of Pain or just the Avatar. Thank you very much. Mm, okay. Yeah. So Saul is shocked to learn that the church is very familiar with his otherwise obscure scholarly writings on ethics, even if the church doesn't really agree with them. Mm-hmm. Saul finally gets to the point that Rachel was taken sick while studying the time tombs and that he learned the church had a hand in recent legislation that would shut down research access to the time tombs, or as the church calls them, the covenant arcs. <laughs> okay. So he wondered if they knew anything about the tombs or the strike that could help Rachel. Are we talking arcs like A-R-K or yes. A-R-C? Okay. Covenant arcs, like arcs of the covenant. I, I, yeah, okay. That's just what I was checking. <laughs> just backwards. It's, it's arc of the covenant, but covenant arc. It's just reversed. <laughs> they just like the idea and took it backwards. <laughs> as soon as Saul reveals that it's a time-related illness, the bishop like sits up and takes notice and asks, like, which tomb was Rachel in when she contracted the disease? And when Saul says it was the Sphinx, the bishop jumps up and is like, this audience is over. Your daughter is the most blessed and cursed of individuals. There is nothing you or the church or any agent in this life can do for her. The end. Saul stands his ground and demands answers, for the bishop only says, Your daughter has been chosen by the Avatar to atone in a way in which all sinners and non-believers must someday suffer. Someday very soon. So, do they have, like, scripture that's oh. gonna say everybody gets to de-age? <laughs> I don't know if it's that, because at that point he has Saul just bodily thrown out of the church. He's like, you're out, and a bunch of exorcists come in and throw Saul out of the church. And that's what they call them. I don't know if they actually do, but they're called the exorcists. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> like, throwing, throwing shrike holy water at him? <laughs> out, demon, out! <laughs> They'd be throwing knives at him, I think, would be more of a shrike thing. <laughs> <laughs> Spiky thing. Hey, I'm the shrike! Oh, I'm gonna just, oh no, I'm an exorcist! Oh, I'm an exorcist! I'm the shrike! I'm gone! Oh, no, you got me. <laughs> Just just sharp sticks. Sharp sticks. Cacti. <laughs> Barbed wire. <laughs> Anything that's pokey. <laughs> so Saul tried a few uh, for a few days to get back in, and then tried the other Shrike churches on New Earth, Renaissance Vector, Fuji, Tau City Center, or TC Squared, Deneb Dre, and Deneb Veer, but they were all close to him. Even Deneb Veer, Daniel. Oh, shocking. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay. I love throwing the long list of weird planet names at you. <laughs> when Saul returned, it was Rachel's 10th birthday. He brought her a gift of the collection of Anna Green Gables, depressed that he couldn't bring more for her. I mean, solid, solid choice, though. Yeah, but she won't remember because she'll read a page and then forget about the next day. Yeah, that's okay. I'm sure that first couple of pages will be really good multiple times. Over and over again for, for the rest of her existence. <laughs> Well, until she's like seven or eight, depending on her reading level. She's quite advanced because, again, she's apparently... Oh, yeah, she's perfect. Yeah, I exactly. forgot. I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so Saul and Sarai continue their charade with Rachel. Sarai having saved all of Rachel's old things as she found a hard to let go of the past, which came up, you know, handy, I guess, in this situation. This is going to be terrible. Who was Sarai? The His mom? wife. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> we barely talked about her. Fair. <laughs> 
So one day, Saul finds her weeping in the attic, angry and frustrated having to find clothes for Rachel, who is growing quickly, only in reverse. Like, what fits an eight-year-old doesn't fit a seven-year-old. And so Sarai felt this whole situation just, like, completely unfair, and, and Saul agrees with her, but, like, what can they do? Rachel, for her part, continued to be a happy kid, and as she grew younger, she was less and less bothered by the incongruities of her life and more readily accepted the explanations for the changes that seemed to happen overnight. Because, you know, mm-hmm. kids are easy to lead. So that's one, I guess, nice thing is that she's becoming more uh pliable yeah she's less <laughs> sort of upset and confused by her situation i was thinking that earlier that eventually it wouldn't be an issue yeah however finding other children willing to play with her and maintain the charade like oh sir uh, meet this brand new kid rachel you never met before every day it did not work out unfortunately mm-hmm. they should have hired somebody i mean that sounds terrible but it might have worked <laughs> I know, Just kids saying. are weird. And they don't have a lot of money. It's like they're rich. And then one day, Saul found Rachel running home from the park, crying, being pursued by news deeps with gleaming camera implants, badgering her with questions about her unusual condition. News had finally gotten out. <laughs> 20 years later or something. Yeah, I mean, they lived on a small, out-of-the-way place, and they kept it to themselves, and they hadn't, like, told a lot of people about it. Wild. But news had gotten out, at least the story broke, and the news media was determined to make a spectacle of their tragedy. Lovely. Yeah, Sounds I know. exactly like something that would happen, though. I know. This is like, again, the story is so on point about, like, yeah, that would happen. They'd be, like, you know, tabloids talking about the, the incredible de-aging girl. Ten secrets doctors don't want her to tell you about aging. <laughs> So, you know, at first Saul resisted, but then he decided to go on the offensive. He arranged interviews on the most popular forecast or cable news programs, participated in all things discussions, and for 10 months made a media tour asking anyone and everyone for help. See, now they might have enough money to pay somebody to pretend to be your friend. <laughs> I mean, at least Problem were... solved, Sam. <laughs> yeah, but you would forget every day, so it's not like it's really that important. No, but it would be nice. I mean, if you're, you feel like, I feel like as a parent, you would feel this weird obligation to make every single day really important. Yeah, I can see that. I think they're just trying to get through each day personally. I know. I mean, that's realistically probably what would happen, but at the same time, you'd feel like, no, we're going to go to Paris today. <laughs> like, well, Paris doesn't yeah, exist. Remember it to, I know, but I'm just I was talking about if they're we gonna lived go to, in They're going to go to Renaissance Vector or Maui Covenant, Danielle. Come on, exactly. remember the planets. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so sorry, everybody. There's not new Paris. <laughs> there Maybe on New Earth, there's a new Paris. <laughs> <laughs> maybe Tau City Center has a Paris district. See? Made fun of me, but it probably exists. I mean, I know evidence of the contrary, I guess. <laughs> there's three more books, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> they were suddenly inundated with offers and letters, Saul and Sarai. Most of them from like faith healers, project promoters, freelance researchers offering to help in exchange for publicity, endorsement deals, all kinds of weird and crazy things. Some were from like uh, religious zealots and shrike cultists with like letters of condemnation, like you deserve this or something. And some were just expressions of sympathy from common people. Luckily, the university saw worked at put together a team to sort through the mail, and most of it was discarded. Uh, only a few medical research offers were seriously considered. However, only one letter really stuck out to Saul, and, and it was a letter from the chairman of Kibbutz Kafar Shalom on Hebron, and mm-hmm. said only, "If it becomes too much, come." So we can sacrifice your daughter. Yes, the kibbutz wants to sacrifice their daughter. I don't know what they're up to, Sam. Anybody's fair game in this book. That's true. Uh, and what it is, Danielle? It's a, <laughs> the letter is not really from the chairman of kibbutz Kafar Shalom. It's actually it's from the shrike. shrike. Yeah, it's a shrike boy. I'm going to get you guys. Ha-ha. I'm the shrike. 
<laughs> I'm gonna fool you into coming with me to the to this planet. I'm gonna get your daughter. Strike out. That's a, it sounds exactly like something the strike would do. Yeah, the strike is known for using language and writing letters as subterfuge instead of just I don't know. We murdering. don't know anything about the strike. You can't. You cannot prove to me that the strike wouldn't write a letter. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I guess I can't prove to you that something can't happen, Danielle. I can only say it has not happened. Or maybe it's what's her face. It could be what's her face, the the uh-huh. one that was having sex with what's his face. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's a, that's a good good start there. <laughs> the two what's their faces. Kassad. <laughs> sure, that sure, was sure. The, the, the one guy. Uh I actually don't remember her name either. That's weird. It's, See? I keep, I keep wanting to say Mina, but Mina is the CEO of the Hegemony. Yes, I knew it's that. A, it's an M name. You, no, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I knew she was CEO of the Hegemony. <laughs> you didn't remember her name, though. No, no, I didn't. There you go. Anyway, uh, she's not important right now. Someday. Maybe. I forget. <laughs> <laughs> So soon their sleepy town of Crawford was turned into a tourist trap, with Saul and his family as the main attraction. <laughs> They're just, like, camping out in front of his house. Yeah, come see the amazing de-aging daughter, you know. There's trinkets and t-shirts, and it's, like, awful. <laughs> That'd be so boring, though, to visit. I mean, it'd be interesting to watch in the news, but it would be boring to visit. Oh, you're like, agree, oh, but I'm sure there's a 10-year-old. <laughs> look, in, in a hegemony of dozens of plants, at least, and, like, billions and billions of people, a lot of people would still go. It's probably true. Enough that a small town of 20,000 people would be overrun. So Saul and Sarai decided to take up the offer to go to Hebron. Hebron was a desert world, which feels a bit on the nose for me for the new Jewish planet, but what do I know? <laughs> it's okay. It's not really the Jewish. It's the shark. <laughs> oh, right, right, right. The only native life being the small, tough creatures that no one cares about. Hebron only has one far cast of Terminix in New Jerusalem. And it was neither a part of the hegemony nor the protectorate. But I guess it is part of the World Web? This confused me. <laughs> okay, if there's New Jerusalem, there's probably New Paris. Just throw it out there. Okay. But I thought only the hegemony controlled the Farcasters. So why did the hegemony put a Farcaster on Hebron if it's not part of... I don't know. It was. I don't know the politics here, Danielle. It confuses me. <laughs> Somebody paid a lot of money. That could be true, actually. But the point was, because of that, they could restrict and heavily tax visitors to keep them outside. So, like, outsiders were not allowed outside the city of New Jerusalem, and even to visit New Jerusalem required quite a bit of, like, visa and paperwork stuff. It's good to know that hasn't disappeared in the future. Yeah, right? So Saul settled into the kibbutz and started a routine of each morning waiting by his daughter's bed until she awoke and he could help her through the, her initial confusion. She would ask why she didn't remember coming here and Saul would tell her that she had an accident, but she was all better now and they were going home soon. Oh, poor Rachel. I know, poor right? Saul. The kibbutz welcomed Rachel each day to the school school as a new visitor. And while the council elders urged Saul to work on his book since they valued scholarly work, Saul found he thought better while doing manual labor, which... Is back to the whole thing about Martin working in the mud pits where he rediscovered his poetry. Mm-hmm. Where apparently you can only be a successful, like, deep thinker if you undergo some severe tragedy and physical pain. I don't know why this surprises you. As I said last time, we've already established that in the previous novel that you made me listen to for many episodes. You mean Fool, Fool on, on the, the Hill? Hill. <laughs> yeah, except that one had, like, BS for pain. Like, that was not pain. Like, this is actual pain. And that book was like, oh, he can't get laid. How sad. I don't a book about it. <laughs> Not having sex was the worst, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It's worse than your daughter DHing before your eyes. I, I, I agree. <laughs> well, he's having sex, so he doesn't have any comparison. I mean, would you? I mean, like, I don't know, but this I feel like this would kill your libido. <laughs> maybe, maybe they're seeking solace in each other. That's true. They're also like 
80 now. So? I'm just saying, still make out. They're just old. I'm not saying they can't do it. I'm just saying. They don't have future Viagra. (laughs) It's called Ultra Viagra. Like Ultra Morphine. (laughs) Just saying. Okay. So after tucking Rachel in the bed. they live longer. (laughs) It's an 80, they do 40. I mean, it's get the Paulson treatments, I guess. So after tucking Rachel into bed each night, Saul would then go watch the sunset and talk to God. Saul hadn't realized he'd been talking to God for several months. He was basically engaging in dialogue in his head, vigorous arguments with himself. So he thought, but then Saul realized one day, quote, that the topics of the heated debates were so profound, the stakes to be settled so serious, the ground covered so broad, that the only person he could possibly be berating for such shortcomings was God himself. Or the Shrike. Or the Shrike in his head, sure. Shrike God. The Church of the Shrike would say that they are the same thing, Danielle. Exactly. See, I'm right. Uh, As always. As always. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Except that Shrikes don't have giant beaks that they impale things on with their noses. Are you sure? I mean, they tear things apart, but they impale them on other things. That's the whole point. Are you sure? Have you seen a Shrike? No, but I I, I at least took the effort of reading the Wikipedia page. There's more (laughs) that I can say for you. (laughs) Why would I look that up, Sam? (laughs) I don't know. Because you may have been curious. (laughs) Yeah, the the joy of learning i don't know i look up many things up in wikipedia i don't think trikes was one of them yeah i think this show is like well, what do you look up uh, serial killers probably i have looked up serial yeah, killers okay. that really highlights what your priorities are actually i think the last thing i looked up on wikipedia was a serial all right i think i've made my point there Danielle. was a reference to it in something i was yeah, watching okay. anyway so a reference to something you <laughs> i was like with- i've never heard of that before I was reading a horror, but uh-huh. never mind, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. The point is, oh, this reference is one patch member's dead card. Gotta go immediately look that up. But this, <laughs> this long, multi-week, month, maybe year project I'm engaged in with my friend about the, the Shrike, I'm not going to bother to look that thing up. Yeah, but you told me what a Shrike was, so I just went with it. In the book, I didn't know what the thing was, so I had to look it up myself. There was a whole difference there. <laughs> yeah, even when I told you what it was, you didn't pay much attention. <laughs> Uh, anyway, let's talk about how uh, Saul is arguing with God. Okay. Let's <laughs> argue with each other. I could tell you a lot about that serial killer, though. So, you know, okay. there's that. I, I, Danielle, I do not want to hear it. I wasn't going to tell you. This was not the appropriate place <laughs> to delve into that. Unless we start talking about a serial killer besides the shark. I mean, it's hard case, to beat the shark for serial it. killing, to be honest. That's true. But we'll wait till he starts killing again. So, the argument would go like this. Saul would want to know how an ethical system could come from God's original command that Abraham kill Isaac. Saul would argue that any allegiance to a deity or concept or universal principle which put obedience above decent behavior towards an innocent human being was evil. And so the voice would argue in his head, so define innocent. And Saul would argue that a child is innocent. And the voice would ask if there was any situation where the blood of an innocent must be shed for a greater cause. And Saul would insist that no, there is no situation where that is reasonable. And the voice would say, perhaps that is part of the lesson which Abraham needed to learn. And then Saul would ask, what lesson was meant? And the voice would not answer. And so it went with very unsatisfying conclusions. <laughs> Go figure. This kind of reminds me of the um, arguments with the Bakura, the the weird people that they would have, like, we are the 4 and 20, or the 3 and 20. The circular logic. Yeah, uh-huh. exactly. As Rachel continued to de-age, she began to lose the ability to read and reason, until one day, when Rachel was around 4, Sarai told Saul that they needed to take Rachel to Hyperion immediately. The pulse and treatments were wearing off. They would age rapidly after that. They didn't have much time left. They had to take Rachel to Hyperion. And the reason Why she wants to, to go... Why to Hyperion? Okay, re- thank you. Never mind. <laughs> 
I was going to ask you why they had to go to Hyperion. Yeah, which I'm about to tell you, Daniel. How was I supposed to know you were going to explain it? (laughs) The reason she wants to go is because of her dream. The one with the red lights and the voice telling her to take Rachel Hyperion and make her an offering. Was she the one having the dream or were they both having a dream? So apparently Sarai had also been having similar dreams to Saul. (laughs) I thought I had missed the entire thing that was actually Sarai having them. But in her dreams, Saul was always there with her. And so she knew he was having the same dreams, even though his were slightly different than hers. Oh, okay, sure. Saul was like, Sarai, we cannot offer Rachel. We cannot make our birth offering of Rachel. That makes no sense. And Sarai agrees. Like, no, we can't offer her, but we can offer ourselves in her place. And Saul was like, oh, maybe I got to go think about this. And so he spent three days and nights in the mountains arguing with God. But the voice tells him that they can't offer themselves in Rachel's place because, quote, it could have been Abraham's solution, but not theirs. And Saul asked, but like, why? Yeah. So Saul asked, why? Why can't we use that same solution? And he has shown a barrage of images from the first and second Holocaust. So, you know, double trouble. <laughs> and the images are mostly of parents trying to hide children or protect their children from the horrors that are befalling them in the chaos. And the voice says, the parents have offered themselves. The sacrifice already has been accepted. We are beyond that. And when Saul demands to know what the answer is for them now, then he gets no answer because of course not. This book is dumb. <laughs> I don't know if it's dumb, but it is weird. <laughs> <laughs> it does like to like leave things very open-ended. And for plot reasons, you can't sacrifice yourself. <laughs> well, I think the, the voice is arguing that, look, you've already made the sacrifice. The parents have already sacrificed themselves for children in these other horrific events. So that sacrifice has already been made. You can't offer a sacrifice that's already been sacrificed. I don't. I don't know if that's true. I mean, if you're, like, animal sacrificing, are you not allowed to do the same animal twice? I mean, you can't make the same goat sacrifice twice. I think it's more like a, um, it's like a swap. Like you said, instead of the children dying in those instances, the parents were offering themselves up instead. And so the concept of taking us in their place had already been established. Sure. I don't necessarily agree with it. I'm just saying this is the argument is happening. Uh, sure. Okay. I'll go with it. I'm not saying I believe it. I'm just saying this is the sort of ethical framework that this story is establishing, at least in, in the head of Saul Weintraub and maybe his argument with a deity of some kind. Mm-hmm. So when Saul returned, he tells Sarai, offering themselves won't work. They argue for a bit, Sarai calling the Shrike the golem, the eyes that they see in the dream. And Saul finally says, obviously Sarai is very homesick. She's so lonely here. She misses her family. And he's like, you want to go back to Bernard's world? You can stay there for a few days with your sister and I'll stay here with Rachel so the new steeps won't hound you. They'll stay with me and you can go and have a nice peaceful vacation with your sister. And when you return in a few days, we'll have thought of a solution. We'll have something we can do. So the day after seeing Sarai off, Rachel uncovers a box in her mom's closet full of photos of her future self. How would you know it's your future self? Well, she do goes through like- these things. She's like, who is this woman? Her name is Rachel, like my name. Is this mom? But no, mom's not name isn't Rachel. Do I have a sister? Because she sees her at all different stages of development. And so it's like, oh, this is kind of looks like me. And yeah, but you could just write it off as just some random family member that she hasn't met. Yeah, so before Saul has a chance to like explain this, the phone rings. So he answers it, and the man in the hollow pit tells Saul there's been a terrible accident. Sarai died. Yeah. A couple of teens yeah. in a stolen EMV out on a joyride crashed in Sarai and her sister and their EMV killing them and several others. It was a freak occurrence since EMVs are some of the safest ways to travel in the hegemony. Unless you're joyriding them. Oh, uh, unless you're Sarai, apparently. I figured she would die since she wasn't With anywhere. Him. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this is where it got like comically tragic for me in a way like, oh, yeah. First, they set this whole, like, his life is perfect. Everything's great. They're all in love. Everything's going well. The daughter's doing, oh, she's aging backwards. It's tragic. He's losing his daughter. And then his wife is killed. And what else can we do to him? It's like... <laughs> <laughs> 
Poor guy. Yeah, exactly. Like, how much more can we do to this man? On the day of the funeral, three days later, Saul is there as usual and Rachel wakes up and he explains to her that there was an accident. Mommy died and we have to go say goodbye to her today. That would suck. You'd have to do that every single day. For the past three days, when she woke up, he's been telling her that mommy died every day because he couldn't bear to lie to her. And so he'd be there as the realization would sink in each time and they would, you know, she would mourn and sob into his arms, which... Oh my gosh. I think I'd, I mean, I understand why he can't lie to her, but I also think it'd be easier just to be like, mom's on vacation. Well, I mean, (laughs) he does do that afterwards, but I think he wanted to at least, you know, get to the funeral first before let them say goodbye before he started pulling some fiction. Sure. The funeral was small and solemn back on Barnard's world, and then they fled back to Hebron as soon as it was over, being chased by new steeps because they're terrible people. (laughs) (laughs) From then on, when Rachel would wake, Saul would tell her mommy was visiting her aunt and would return tomorrow. When Rachel turned three, Saul began to petition the Church of the Strike to be allowed on the pilgrimage. During those final two years, Saul thought of Rachel de-aging as being not so different from watching an elderly loved one succumb to an old age and dementia, only worse because it was his own child he was seeing that happened to. Remind me, they so at three years old, they started the pilgrimage, no, but because of- He didn't start the pilgrimage. He's, he's petitioning the church. Now he's like, hey, let me go on a pilgrimage to, to Hyperion. Oh, he wants to go on a pilgrimage, not the specific pilgrimage. No, he's petitioning them for a pilgrimage. Like, hey, I want to go to Hyperion. And the church now sort of controls access to the time tombs. That was my next question. Yeah, they control access to all that time from Cyprian. Like, they got that legislation passed, they shut down access, the church has sort of been, whatever reason, taking control of uh, access to the time tombs, and so he's petitioning them to be allowed to go. Uh, he's also petitioning the government, the Senate, to give him a special visa, but, you know, that's going nowhere. Why didn't he try this, like, ages ago? I think he didn't want to go to Hyperion because he didn't want to follow what the voice was telling him. He didn't want to be like, oh, I'm going to the place where I'm going to sacrifice my daughter, and, like, start himself down that path. I suppose. I mean, you like, <laughs> Oh, the voice I'm going to go to Hyperion and sacrifice my daughter. I'm just going to avoid Hyperion so I never have to worry about that ever coming up. I'm never going to sacrifice it. I'm going to avoid that whole situation. I guess I get that. But at the same time, you think that if you'd exhausted everything, which he did quite a while ago, you might think, well, maybe I should go to Hyperion. Maybe I think he was hoping like there's still time. I can still go later if necessary. I want to try to exhaust like, literally everything else. I suppose. So anyway, uh, as Rachel was 18, her permanent teeth had fallen out and baby teeth replaced them. Yeah. Yeah. Only to then recede back. Back into her jaw over time. Gross. <laughs> so you get I don't body know why you needed to add that detail. <laughs> I had to add the, the book added that detail, so I got to add it for you, Danielle. That horror is We did not need to at all. You know how I feel about teeth. <laughs> That's why I put it in there. Just for you. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But it was watching Rachel lose her language, which was her biggest connection to Saul, that hurt the most. Yeah, that'd be hard. Yeah. So, Saul took Rachel and traveled the web, petitioning the Shrike Church, lobbying the Senate for a visa, going to every research facility he could. But eventually, he returned to Hebron, where Rachel was 15 months old. Despite all this, Saul still loved caring for his daughter and holding her as once he had, but it was still devastating when she uttered her last word, Mama, at five months old. Aww. <laughs> right? <What> baby. <laughs> her last first word, I guess. Eventually, Saul went on the talk show, Common Talk, with Devin Whiteshire, who said, So, you were saying the Shrike Church's refusal to allow you to return to the time tombs, and the hegemony's tardiness in processing a visa, these things will doom your daughter? your child to this extinction? And Saul's like, yes, that's exactly what's happening. It takes six weeks to get Hyperion, and Rachel is now 12 weeks old. Any more delay will be fatal. And so Devin, like, urges the crowd, like, if you think this is terrible, call your senator, you know, call your representative. <laughs> he should have done this a while ago. <laughs> petition the Shrike Church. Do all that stuff. And those numbers will now flash up on your screen. And again, he didn't necessarily want to go to the Hyperion before. He already did the media blitz where he's like, hey, if you have anything that can help my daughter, let me know. So he did that already. Right. 
then now it's like, all right, I'm getting desperate. This is the last thing I want to do, but I have to do it. 12 weeks is pushing it, is all I'm saying. So eventually Saul was selected for the pilgrimage, and he endured the nausea, vertigo, headache, and hallucinations of being conscious during the first leg of their journey and being exposed to the Hawking effect, because Rachel was too young to be put into the fugue, and so Saul would have to stay awake to take care of her. What makes her too young to be in it? Because she's a baby. I don't know, Danielle. She could not be put into cryogenic <laughs> fugue. The science behind that—that that a baby can be put in there. I don't know, Danielle. I'm not a future scientist. <laughs> I'm a common current scientist. <laughs> Even that's a bit iffy. I'm disappointed in your knowledge, Sam. Of the future science, sure. <laughs> but the important thing is, during this trip, Saul had another dream, Danielle. Of course he did. And this time, he was carrying Rachel in his dream for the first time. Suddenly, a different voice, cold and immense, told him to make the burnt offering as before. Saul shouted into the darkness. There will be no more offerings, neither child nor parent. There will be no more sacrifices for anyone other than our fellow human. The time of obedience and atonement is past. The red gloom that surrounded him would deepen, then disappeared, leaving only darkness. As from far away, there came the boom of huge footsteps, and Saul awoke as wind rushed past him. I'd love for this to be a story about, like, the uh, power of the human spirit or something, but I feel like this book is very dark. <laughs> <laughs> all the humans will probably die and it'll all be meaningless. <laughs> I don't know, Danielle. I, I think it gets it gets really weird. It gets interesting. Mm-hmm. So after Saul awoke, he looked out the window to see the glimmer of light that was Yggdrasil, the tree ship that would take them to Hyperion. Saul smiled at Rachel and she smiled back. Quote, it was her last or her first smile. And that's the end of the yes. story. <laughs> After the story, everyone's just sort of kind of stunned. They're like, oh, that's heavy, man. <laughs> well, your story wins. <laughs> your story sort of wins right now. We're most, like, absolutely tragic. Like, whoa. Like, Cassage was the sexiest by far. And Martin's was, I don't know, the goofiest. <laughs> <laughs> Something. And, and the priest story was pretty tragic, too. But, like, in a, oh, that's horrifying way. Not like, oh, this is, like, absolutely devastating kind of way. And more like their fault kind of way. This seems much less... Uh, yeah. There's much less culpability with their story. Yeah, exactly. So now uh, Saul has come back to Hyperion with Rachel, hoping that maybe going back to the time tombs, he can find some way to fix things. Like, he doesn't go into any detail about what he wants to do. There's like, he's on the pilgrimage. That's the last thing he could think of to do. Interesting. They decide now to go above deck to get some air because, oof. They're all really sad and they want to go to their rooms and cry. <laughs> well, the guy go up. There's not like individual rooms, unfortunately. <laughs> So while staring up at the sky, they see the sudden flashes of light of a space battle. Cassada mm. identifies it, the it as an evil ouster. ones. Yeah, ousters. Yeah, the ousters. Cassada identifies it as an ouster raid, probing the defenses around Hyperion. How would you know that from watching from the ground? He had binoculars and stuff. He can get a close up look. Oh, sure. And also, sure, he's sure. an experienced uh, space combat. Pr- he knows ouster tactics. He's like those flashes are definitely ousters and not anything else. No, he'd be like, yeah, they see. He gets like some, you know, one of those future magnifying binoculars. I'm like, oh yeah, those are scout ships. <laughs> Yes, the future magnifying binoculars. Well, we can start wars or Well known. Yeah. <laughs> Ones that like can zoom in our computer and I know what you're talking yeah, about. So then. stop being a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the fun in that? <laughs> so as they're watching, they suddenly see Yggdrasil, the tree ship, light up. It was hit. 
It begins to burn Uh in the sky before finally (gasps) fading. Not the tree ship. Yeah. To quote, Did it destroy? The tree ship Yggdrasil, with its crew and complement of clones and semi-sentient erg drivers, was dead. No! Not Yggdrasil. Yeah, Yggdrasil. My favorite tree ship. Yeah, absolutely. One of five in existence. The console turned to Het Mastin saying, I'm so sorry. But Mastin suddenly puts up his hood and goes below deck leaving the others. Clearly devastated. He's like, no, my ship. I mean, it's more than a ship to him. It's like a religious thing and like his life. He's the, he is the true voice of the tree, the tree that is now destroyed. <laughs> He's the true voice of nothing. Well, you're so cruel to these people and their <laughs> grief, Danielle. I feel so bad for him. I feel worse for Saul, but I feel bad for him and his tree ship. So Kassad decides they should post a watch that night, and the console volunteers for the first shift, taking the death wand Kassad offers him. Everyone else goes to bed. While the console keeps watch, thinking. The end of the chapter. Do they all have dreams about giving Rachel up in a fiery blaze? If they do, I'm unaware of it. (laughs) Babies on spikes. Babies on spikes, and your favorite thing, I know. (laughs) It's a whole different meaning once it's an actual baby, right? Not just a hypothetical (laughs) joke. Poor Rachel. Poor Saul. So that was probably our least funny Hyperion episode, I feel. Oh, um, yeah. Probably one of the more tragic. So good job, everyone. We got through the saddest story in Hyperion. At least it's, it's all uphill from here. Downhill? I don't uphill? know. It, it's, all, it's all weirder from here, but like that's like <laughs> we've gone through the tragedy. Boy, that's a hard one. That's a hard story to get through. We survived. They may not. You want to guess what the next story is, Danielle? Uh... It's not the console yet, is it? How many stories have we had? That was four? That was four. How many people are there again? Seven. Seven? Is it What's-Her-Face, the woman? Do you have a name? Binky McJoy Face. Yeah, it's Binky McJoy Face. <laughs> Binky McJoy. Hi, I'm Binky McJoy Face. I'm friends with the Shrek. I am the Shrek. <laughs> They're all the same voice. I don't remember. Her name was, it was an odd name. I don't remember it. It's Braun Lamia. Braun Lamia. Is it her? Yeah. Yay! It's titled The Detective's Tale, colon, The Long Goodbye. She's a detective? Yes. Danielle, she's, a, <laughs> she's a detective, Danielle. I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> I like a good mystery. I don't know if it's a mystery or another tragedy. We'll find out next week. I'm looking for, do you like sadness? Do you like being made, <laughs> being told about sad things without any jokes? Listen to Book Retorts about Hyperion. <laughs> Uh, I feel so bad. It was a sad, like, jokeless episode. I'm sorry, everybody. But, like, how can you make fun of somebody slowly losing their child? That's horrifying. I can't do it. I feel like I'm going to make that into a clip, and that's what I'm going to put on all our social. Do you like sadness? <laughs> Join us on Book Retorts. <laughs> That'll be our trailer from now on. Oh, that's another new, ch- new tagline. All right, we're giving up comedy. We're going, well, not that we're very good at it to begin with. I mean, some would say we never had any comedy on this podcast, so. Uh, oh, that's not true. Our listeners love us. <laughs> strictly tragedy from here on out. <laughs> Our listeners think we're hilarious. Uh, uh, we'll see after this episode. <laughs> we tried our best to make it entertaining. Feel free to let us know if we failed miserably. If you have any jokes you want to make about a, child, about a father slowly losing his child, you can definitely send this to us, please. I'm sure, we can, I'm sure you can demonstrate to us how it's done. <laughs> we'll edit them in. Yeah, I'm sure that, that'll go over well. <laughs> Oh, so how are you feeling, Danielle? Good to be back in the, in the listener seat? Yeah, I so missed these wildly depressing stories. This was, I mean, this is the first really depressing story. The other ones were not as depressing as this. That's true. I mean, the entire city died with uh, 
Martin Salinas, but hey, yeah, other than that, it was fine. <laughs> I mean, but to be fair, like it died, but in like a, a crazy way, and it was him obsessing about writing his cantos while I don't know, dresses as, as a satyr. I mean, how crazy is that? <laughs> It was a particularly odd one. Yeah. I mean, if you had a, a satyr man writing a, a poem about a murder bot coming around and murdering your friend, like, that's at least a little weird. All I remember from that episode is that he told me he became a satyr, and then we talked for, like, 40 minutes, and then you were like, and now he took back the surgery, and now he's a human again. And I was like, he's still a satyr? <laughs> <laughs> i forgotten, and it had been, like, years. <laughs> No, no, he's, yeah. <laughs> it really threw me off because in my head he was human, and then I was suddenly like, oh my god, the last like 40 minutes of the story were him and Seder. I know. This is why I really want them to make a TV show on this because I want to see Seder Martin traipsing around the city of poets being like, I'm going to you know, have a weird tryst here and then like get obsessed with murder <laughs> as a Seder. <laughs> oh, wild stuff. Well, join us next week for something that'll be probably funnier. <laughs> Hopefully, funnier. I mean low bar so that'll be it'll be great <laughs> and enjoys in two weeks for uh the detective's tale the long goodbye maybe another tragic story i'll try to make it funnier if i can sorry i'm gonna go with something light next week i hope <laughs> i haven't quite decided but i'll try and make no, it less do a depressing movie, everybody like a really really sad horror movie like uh, a parasite really or something sad horror movie oh <laughs> Now, to be clear, uh, we do not actually want to make fun of anyone losing their, their child. That is a horrific tragedy, <laughs> and I'm merely illustrating that it is difficult to make jokes about, and you shouldn't make jokes about it. Oh my gosh, you should! I feel like you should cut that entire ending. <laughs> what? The, the entire invitation to invite people to make jokes? <laughs> yes. Why is it, is it too bad? It's really sad. It was a really sad episode, Danielle, I don't tell you. <laughs> oh gosh. If you have jokes about this episode that aren't about a father losing his daughter, you can send it to us at bookretorts.com. You can also tweet Instagram or Facebook us at bookretorts. And if for whatever reason, this sad, sad episode has made you want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash bookretorts. Patreon! <laughs> yeah, Patreon. I'd that. Yeah, it'd been a while yeah. since I got to say that. That was very exciting. Yeah, we need a little cheer in this episode. <laughs> We would love some knock-knock jokes. Oh, I got one, Danielle. Knock-knock. <laughs> Who's there? Rachel. Rachel who? Rachel who's slowly aging backwards and is going to die. <laughs> oh, that's so sad. <laughs> Why would you do that? I guess it can't be done. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> that was not funny. Yeah, you laughed. That's <laughs> because <laughs> it's terrible. Oh, absolutely awful, Danielle. <laughs> terrible. <laughs> Uh, what the best thing you do on short notice? All right, everybody, feel free to message us. Better knock knock jokes than Sam's. Yeah, everyone, I'm sure we gotta stop there. Uh, we're clearly trying our best to to overcome our sadness. <laughs> Until next time, don't cry too hard. Bye. <laughs> Take care, everybody.
nothing. Are we stopping recording? Uh, I don't know. Do we have enough? It really feels like we do. <laughs> I don't know. I'll, I'll make it work. You'll make it work. <laughs> maybe, maybe the outro should just be us crying for like 10 minutes. <laughs>